Have you ever heard the expression, I've got to wrap my mind around that? You know, we've all used it from time to time, right? Maybe you see some gymnast who's just contorting their body in a certain way, and you're thinking, i got to wrap my mind around how they're doing that. Or maybe you see a toddler with just more food on their body than in their mouth, and you're saying, i got to wrap my mind around how they did that. How is that even possible? Or maybe it's the use of electronics and some kind of gadget, and you're thinking, i got to wrap my mind around how I'm even going to use this or how this works. Maybe it's something more serious. Maybe it's the death of a loved one and you're thinking, I got to wrap my mind around how I'm supposed to pick up the pieces, how life is supposed to move forward. Maybe it's concerning God and you think, I got to wrap my mind around who he is and how he loves and what he's done. Yeah, there are certain topics in life, certain moments in life where we just have to take the time to wrestle, to really wrap our minds around what's going on and what we're seeing and the input that we're receiving. This morning, we're going to engage a topic like that. It's, it's a topic that we're really going to have to take some time with this passage and really look at it and explore because at first glance, well, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It seems to be hard for us in our context today. We're, we're going to be looking at what is commonly known as the Book of the Covenant. It's Exodus 21 through 24. So we got four chapters of Old Testament law, Mosaic law. I mean, it's this portion of the of the scriptures where if you start a Bible reading plan, well, this is the part where you give up because you start reading these laws and they seem so foreign, so just out of our context, so inapplicable that you think, what, what, why am I even reading this anyway? This is weird. This is sometimes even offensive. So with that, you know, we don't have time to read all four chapters. I want to take you to the end because we're going to scale this mountain this morning. It's, it's, it is a tall mountain and it's scary to look at and there's obstacles and it's hard. It's the type of mountain that you look at and you think, I don't know that I want to scale that. I don't think I want to climb that mountain. I don't think I really need to understand. I don't think I can understand. And it's the kind of mountain that you can get injured trying to scale too. It can injure your faith. These verses can do that. So we want to take the time together this morning to wrestle with them thoughtfully and thoroughly. So let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to take you to the end, almost the summit of it, okay, where we're going to end up. And it's Exodus 24 verses 3 through 11. So this is the view from the top, all right? It reads, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as if it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. I mean, this is an incredible scene, isn't it? And what a powerful scene. You have the people, these elders, these leaders up, drinking with God, eating with God, having a meal with God, 
beholding God. This is the peak of the mountain, and that's where we're going to get to. But as we do, you have to understand where it all starts, and it starts at the bottom of the mountain. Moses gives the Israelites this book of the covenant. He gives them these laws. And these laws are hard for us. They're difficult for us. They seem strange. They seem weird, even offensive at times. We've got to spend some time to kind of wrap our minds around them. I want to read just a few of them to you this morning and just see how they strike you. Okay, listen to this one. It says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I don't know if that's going to affect your lunch plans, but there you go. Another portion of the law says this, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or the fat of my feast, lest it remain until morning. Okay, don't know what you're going to do with that, but there it is. There's some other laws, laws related to livestock, okay? For instance, it reads, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over, lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the beast in his own field and in his own vineyard. There's also, when one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they, shall let, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Okay, evidently this was an issue, that ox would just like have this battle to the death, and so they got to know, know what to do in response to this. We also have laws that we read, and at first glance, they do kind of strike us as a bit offensive. I want you to hear these. It says, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. There's also this law. It says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. So it's laws like this that just kind of stop us in our tracks, that put a halt to our Bible reading plan. Because we say, I don't even know what this is talking about. It's how can God have put a law like that into place? It's, it's laws like this that cause a lot of pastors to say, you know what? I still think I'm going to preach past Exodus chapter 20. Once we get to the Ten Commandments, that's probably good enough. But see, when you do that, there's a danger in that. And the danger is this, when you skip these, when you skip actually diving in and knowing what these laws meant, why they were put in place, well, we miss a little bit of the character of God and, and who God is and what he's like. We miss that, that God actually looks out for the vulnerable and the oppressed and the weak. Because these laws, well, they're just as inspired, they're just as inerrant as any other passage of Scripture. Yeah, they might not look great on a coffee mug or on a bumper sticker, but they're still important. So we want to do the hard work this morning of really trying to ascend the mountain and understand well what these laws mean so that we can see the goodness behind them. Because when we begin to wrap our minds around this, well, some of us, we're going to struggle with that. And that's okay. We're not the only ones. You know, Peter would say something very similar as he's kind of writing about Paul's uh, words. He wrote this. I want you to hear it. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 18. Peter writes, Count the presence of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and un unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.
Okay, we don't want to be like the ignorant. We don't want to be like the unstable who look at these laws and twist them and actually injure our own faith, lead to our own destruction because we can't rightly understand them. And it can happen with some of these laws. It has happened with some of these laws. We want to grow in the wisdom and the knowledge and the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and who God is and what he's done. And so we don't just like take the parts of scripture that we like or that are easy or that are comfortable we wrestle with all of it because the fact of the matter is we actually have some pretty strange laws on our books today as well. Did you realize that? I mean, we talked last week about just how many laws we have in this country, but you know, there's a lot of really weird ones out there too. I want you to listen to some of these. It is actually a law on the books that you cannot use x-rays for shoe fittings in Washington state. Bingo games are not allowed to last more than five hours in North Carolina, okay? No all-night bingo, okay? Uh, Farmers cannot sell pickles to customers in farmers markets in Connecticut. And we still have some interesting laws related to women that are on the books today as well. Did you know that in Virginia, it is illegal to tickle women, okay? Virginia is for lovers, not for ticklers. In Michigan, if a woman uh, wants to get her hair cut, she must have permission from her husband beforehand. In Carmel, California, women cannot wear high heels without a permit from City Hall. And in Memphis, Tennessee, it is illegal for a woman to drive unless her husband runs ahead of her, waving a red flag, alerting all the other motorists on the road that she's behind the wheel. Yeah, all these laws, they're still actually on the books, but thankfully they're not enforced anymore. But there was a time when people got together and said, you know what would make our community better? As if we had a law like this, as if this happened. So we have all these laws that are confusing that we read in the Old Testament. We say, why, why would there be laws like this? Understand, uh, theologians have kind of broken these laws down into several different categories for us, and I think they're helpful. You have laws concerning slavery, you have laws concerning personal injury, you have laws concerning property, laws concerning justice and social responsibility, and you have laws concerning, concerning the Sabbath and and other festivals that God has instituted. In all of these laws, every last one of them has at their heart this idea to love God and to love others. And what does that look like? How am I supposed to love God and how am I supposed to love my neighbor, especially in difficult times in life, almost in the gray areas of life? What is this supposed to look like? And what we see here is with these laws, there's about 50 of them, Roughly half of them deal with the powerless, deal with the victim, the oppressed, the poor, the weak, the vulnerable. See, we see at the very heart of God, his affection for those who are lowly, who are in need of protection. I want you to see it this morning. I'm going to take a couple of the laws that just really are the most offensive to us in our context today that we read and just kind of have a hard time with at first glance. So, And as we do that, I think you'll see the blessing behind them. Let's start with Exodus 21, 2 and 3. It says this, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. 
Now, we read that first part, you know, we get, okay, when you buy a Hebrew slave, and that just kind of stops us in our tracks right there, and we're already offended, right? Because we have in our minds, in our context, just the slavery that took place in the antebellum South. And so we, when we think of slavery, we think of involuntary, lifelong, brutal servitude that's just going to last for generations, that's horrific. That's the kind of slavery that's in our minds, but that's not the kind of slavery that was taken place back then. It's not even the kind of slavery that the Israelites came out of in Egypt. It's a different type of slavery. In fact, there are laws preventing that kind of slavery right here in the book of the covenant. It actually reads in Exodus 21, 16, it says this, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. See, the expectation for God's people was that you can't just go kidnap people and then sell them off because if you do that, well, then you die and the person who buys that person, well, they die as well. Why? Because that is forbidden. This type of slavery is forbidden. And because of that, because of uh, translators have tried to almost change the word here a little bit just to help us modern readers kind of understand a little bit better of what this slavery looks like. And so in some of your Bibles, you might see the word bond servant or servant or worker or something like that. And really, the best two modern day equivalencies of this type of slavery from what I've read is the pro-athlete and the military. Okay, so let's, let's look at the pro-athlete first, okay? When we talk about professional sports, um, sometimes you'll hear phrases like, uh, you know, is your favorite team going to release that player? Will he become a free agent? Will they trade him to another team? Will there be a bidding war for him? Who will buy him? See, we hear that in professional sports, and we don't think twice about it. It doesn't bother us at all because we understand the context. We know what's happening. It's not that the team owns that person. No, they own the rights to that person's skill and abilities out on the field. It's not like the person can just decide, okay, well, today I'm going to play for this team. Next day I'm going to play for that team. Next day I'm going to play for that team. No. This team owns the rights to their skills and their abilities. You just don't get to pick and choose that way. Another example is the military. When you enlist in the military, the military doesn't just kind of own you in a sense that now you lose all personal privileges and personal rights. No, you have voluntarily contracted with the military for a predetermined length of time to perform, to perform services, to perform tasks. And if you break that contract, if you just say, hey, I'm out, well, then there's serious repercussions on your end. Why? Because they own your time, they, they, they own your skill, they own your service for this length of time. And if you break it, there's serious consequences. But they own your time, not you. So, for the Israelites, these people who were recently re released and rescued from this oppressive, brutal, involuntary, generational slavery, when they heard these laws, well, these laws were a refuge to them. It's, you mean my family isn't going to be broken up? You mean if I go into slavery, they just can't like rip my wife away from me, that she can, she's going to stay with me? You mean that if I have a master, an employer, an owner who's abusive to me, that there's going to be consequences for him? They just can't treat me brutally? 
You, you mean if I'm poor and I'm just trying to get a le- leg up and earn some, some, learn some type of a skill and, and it kind of advance myself a little bit that they're not going to have like rights over my labor indefinitely for decades or generations, that it's six years. There's this predetermined length of time where it gives me an opportunity to learn a skill, to, to better myself a little bit, but it's only for this short length of time. That's the longest it can be. You understand these laws, they, they were a blessing, a refuge to Israel. They're not, they're not oppressive. They worked in a context that's completely and totally different than ours to help these people and to look out for them so that there couldn't be a master, an employer, an owner who brutalizes them or take advantage of them. These are laws protecting the vulnerable, the weak, and the lowly. I also want you to look at Exodus 21, 7 through 11. It's another difficult passage for us concerning women. It says this, When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter." If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. And we read just that first sentence, and then we even read how it kind of acts, and it it bothers us. I mean, what kind of a dad would sell his daughter into slavery. We, we, we wrestle with that. It's painful for us. It sounds awful. But before we judge too quickly, I just, I just think that there's probably a pretty good chance that if you just took some Israelites from that culture way back then and you just kind of planted them in 21st century America today, that they'd probably take issue with some of the things that we do as well. Just imagine, for instance, that you're sitting at home, you're watching a TV show and this Israelite walks in and he says, hey, what you watching? You say, oh, I'm just watching this show. It's like 25 women or so. They're just like cooped up in this house and they're all fighting and battling and trying to win the affection of this one guy, trying to make sure that they're not rejected and they can get this rose. I imagine that Israelite, he's going to look, he's going to say, what? I mean, are you kidding? You say that you value biblical marriage and all of this and yet you've cheapened it into some reality TV show? I mean, come on. See, understand, before we just jump too quickly to judge, let's let's just take this posture of humility for a moment. Because the fact of the matter here is that in this culture, the father was not just trying to sell off his daughter, not just trying to profit off of his daughter. This was almost always a poor family where the father is looking and saying, okay, I'm trying to improve the prospects for my daughter. I'm trying to give her opportunities to be provided for opportunities to find a husband who can love her and provide for her well. Okay, this is a guy who can barely take care of his own wife, who can barely take care of his own kids, and now he sees an opportunity. Okay, perhaps this is how my daughter can be taken care of, can be loved, can be provided for. So, within that context, knowing that this is how slavery works, and this would have been the mindset back then, God puts some needed protections in this place for this vulnerable woman. He says, he gives three protections here. 
He says, first, okay, if you go into this house and you're hoping to be adopted into this family, kind of grafted in by being married to one of the men, but it just doesn't work out. I mean, for whatever reason, it's just not working out. That family's not then allowed just to say, okay, you know, this isn't working. Let's just try to make some kind of profit off of her. Maybe we'll sell her to some foreigner and they can just take her away. God said, that's not allowed. If it doesn't work out, what do you do? You just let her go back free. You cannot profit off of her at all. She's just allowed to go back free. Second, okay, say it does work out. Things are going good. She gets engaged to some guy immediately. She's no longer the bond servant. She's no longer the slave. Now immediately she is to be treated as the daughter, grafted in full rights of the family. And third, in that culture, while it was never God's plan, never his ideal, there were some who took multiple wives. If that were to happen, God says, you understand there, there will be no second class wives in my, uh, in my administration. Every woman must be treated with respect. There's no second class citizen. So she must be provided for with, with, all, with everything that entails. Food, clothing, marital rights, every single thing that that entails. These laws protected women when they were most vulnerable in this context. So, we see that these laws that God has given, they're always protecting the vulnerable. They're always protecting the outcast, always looking after the victim. And it's not just slaves and women. I mean, you go through these laws and you'll see that there's laws in place to protect widows and orphans. There's laws in place to protect even foreigners, sojourners, refugees. In fact, it says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. There's even laws protecting the unborn. In, in this uh, book of the covenant, it says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. You understand the whole idea of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth? It came in the context of protecting the unborn, showing that the unborn in the mother's womb, they are valuable, they, are, they, have, they have worth, they need to be protected. And so even if there's no harm at all, there's a fine that's going to be imposed if you even pose a threat to that child. But if there is harm, well, then whatever harm came to that child, it also comes to you. This is how serious God looks after the unborn. Do you see all these laws? I mean, we've just kind of skimmed them this morning. But every last one of these laws, they paint a beautiful picture of who our God is. How he continually looks after the lowly in society. I mean, that's what we see. This reveals the character of our God. And it's a character that does not change. That even today we know that God is a God who lifts up the lowly. That he prospers the poor. That, that he adds value to the victim. That, that he provides a refuge for the outcast. This is who our God is. 
And, you know, we might look at this and kind of wonder, okay, that's kind of cool, but what, how does this all apply to me? You know, Paul argues in the book of Galatians that, no, we're no longer under the law, that the law was given at that time as a guardian, as a, as a parent to kind of teach us what is right and what is wrong. But now those laws are simply written on our hearts. We're no, no longer under them, but under Christ. You see, when the law as a parent, as a guardian, think of it with, as, as a parent, as you're parenting a child. What do you do? Well, you put some laws in place, right? You have laws on screen time. You're only allowed to be on electronics this amount of time. You have laws concerning like the refrigerator. Hey, you can't open the fridge without permission. You have laws concerning the bedtime. You got to go to bed at a certain time. You have these laws in place. But then the hope is that they mature, that they grow, and then there's this self-control that they possess so that they have wisdom in regulating their own use of electronics, that they have wisdom and self-control in their own food choices, that they have wisdom and self-control in when they go to bed and making sure that they get enough rest. See, the law is elementary. Now we are under Christ, and so there's even a more intensity. See, now we are the ones who are to look out for the poor. We are the ones who are to lift up the lowly. We are the ones to provide refuge for the oppressed. This is who we are. We get to take light to the darkness. And this law, it foreshadows all of that. Now I know you might be listening this morning and and you hear this, and you think, well, being under Christ and being his bondservant, his slave, to go out and do that, well, I don't think I want any part of that. I mean, that sounds oppressive. That sounds restrictive. I don't know that I want those regulations on me. Understand this, the Bible tells you that right now, well, you are a slave. You are a bondservant, whether you realize it or not. But your bondservant before Christ, you are a bondservant to sin. To sin, that even when you want to do right, you always seem to mess things up. That you can't help but just doing things that you thought you'd never do, saying things you swore you'd never say, thinking things you wish you could just get out of your mind. That all of this still inflicts pain on us today. See, being a bondservant of Jesus, a slave to Jesus, it's actually the most freeing, liberating thing possible. We actually even got a picture of that too as we ascended the mountain. Did you see it at the end in Exodus 24? You get this picture where Moses has gone down to the base of the mountain and he has read the book of the covenant. And how do the people respond? We will do that. We will obey all the words of the Lord. We'll do it. We're in. And then what happens? Moses and some of the men, some of the leaders, they are now invited from the base of the mountain up to the top of the mountain to eat with God and to behold him. Understand that's what God wants to do with you. He wants to invite you to his table, to eat with you, to commune with you, to you to behold him and what he wants to do in your life. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. It's a freeing thing. It's a liberating thing. You're not a servant in the sense that it's oppressive and brutal. No, you're a bond servant in the sense that you're now a part of the family. You've been grafted in. And so that brings hope. But to experience that hope, well, hope requires obedience. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when you give laws, they're always for our good. They always teach us how to love others and to love you well, even in hard moments, even in the gray areas of life. 
So God, help us to reflect your love for us well this week. Help us to love well. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.